You all know that God has a plan, right? He has made plans and executed plans since before the world began. And he has been unfolding those plans, revealing them to us gradually over the course of history. Sometimes from our limited vantage points, in the, in the midst of our, our short and sometimes hard lives, it can be really hard for us to see God's plan, to see how he's working in our lives, let alone history. It's kind of like trying to examine the parliament buildings downtown with a microscope. If you can just imagine that picture, going up to them, looking at a microscope, everything's blurry, it's unclear, because we're looking at much too small of a picture. And we need, I believe we need to regularly step back in order to see and try to see what God is doing on a grand scale. And to see how then we might fit in, in the, to the big picture of God's plan. Sometimes God's word can give us a really good panoramic view of what he's up to. And I think that our passage today is one such, you could call it a scenic lookout. So you can go ahead and open up with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we read there, I'm going to fill you in on some significant background info. And before we do that, I think we should stop and pray again. For our time as we open God's word and we ask him to speak to us. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask that our hearts would be open today, ready to receive from you, ready to hear from your word we recognize that it is truth, that it has authority, and that you have spoken it to us. Lord, I pray that every word would go forth today with power, not because it's my words, but because it's your words, and that each heart would not be able to leave here unchanged by what they hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how we have certain songs that we sing, especially during certain seasons, like in Christmas or Easter, we, there are songs we sing around those seasons? Well, the, the Hebrew people had songs that they would sing at certain seasons too. And Psalm 118, 118 was a song that they would sing each year during the Passover. And they, as they made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they entered the holy city, right in the heart of that, they would sing these words. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what the, this tells us is that God was doing something. He was in the middle of a building project, but he was using a foundational cornerstone that many others had rejected. Now, if you don't get that picture, don't worry, we're going to get to that. Just note for now, that this psalm was all about God's salvation to his people. You have become my salvation. But also how his plan 
didn't really fit the usual blueprints that we humans would dream up or draw up. A handful of pages over, the prophet Isaiah made a prophecy using similar language. In Isaiah 8, he gives the negative connotations for those who would reject God's salvation. And he says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So what it's saying is that God himself would become a stumbling block to his people, something that they would trip over in their attempts to be saved. Then 20 chapters after that, Isaiah was prophesying again, and he said this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, or the grave, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In the words of, of Tom Schreiner, says, Isaiah's message was that those who do not trust in God will perish, but those who put their faith in him will triumph. Then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus enters the scene. Peter does too, as one of Jesus' disciples. And when Peter made his great confession, say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commended him. He said, you know, God is actually the one who revealed part of his plan to you, for you to say that. And then he made, uh, he reminded Peter of what his name meant, the rock, and made a play on words. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But ironically, in the very next passage, Jesus was talking about how he would soon suffer and die. And Peter took Jesus aside and said, No way, Lord, that's, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus rebuked Peter in a shocking way. You all know it probably. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, the rock, little r, rock, was a stumbling block now. But the point is, Peter just didn't get it at this point in the story. He didn't see God's whole plan. A little while later, Jesus quoted directly from Psalm 118, which we just read, and Jesus said, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Essentially, Jesus was applying this prophecy to himself 
and saying that he was being rejected. And as he was doing so, these words were coming to pass. Peter still didn't get it. At least until Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. And then he got it. He realized what God had been doing, what he had been up to, and soon he was preaching this. That this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now, in 1 Peter 2, Peter borrows from all of these different places in Scripture, bringing them into focus for us, putting all the pieces together. Really, he's pulling us back from the microscopic view we have of our own lives, and he's gesturing, look, look at what God has been doing all along. And his plan revolves around Jesus. His plan, he's the cornerstone. And oh, by the way, believe it or not, you're part of this plan. You're part of this plan, so lift your eyes. So Peter just got done saying to, to love one another and then to grow up in our salvation. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, he read this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He then says how when we come to Jesus, we really enter into the heart of God's plan. So you taste that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Uh, if verse 4 refers to God's plan, verse 5 talks about our purpose within it. It says, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to, to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 to 8 gives us the biblical basis for the centrality of Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and as we read, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Stop there for now. But we might need to pause after the first five words of this passage in verse 4. As you come to him, to Jesus, and ask, have you come to him? Have you come to him? Like we say, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Coming to him is really shorthand here for the whole process of being saved by faith. You might imagine living near a coast and a huge typhoon or hurricane is coming. And you might imagine that when you hear of it, you know you're in grave danger. But you also hear that a storm shelter nearby has opened its doors up to you. And you hear the call, come, come to the shelter, you will be safe here. The gospel 
first tells us that we are facing a terrible storm because of our sin. That we are in grave danger from God's judgment, from His wrath, even hell. But then it tells us that there is a, a shelter from that storm in the cross of Christ. And where Jesus himself bore the brunt of the judgment that we deserved. We are then called to, to come. Come to Jesus. You will only be safe there. So, have you run to him? Is he your refuge? Is he your rock? Have you found salvation in him alone? Because like Peter preached, there is no other name. Everything hangs on Jesus and how we respond to him. Everything. And that's really the main point of our, our whole passage for today in 1 Peter. Yes, Peter's going to talk about what this all means for us, but Jesus is the point. I put it this way, that Jesus is the chosen, precious cornerstone in God's plan. Jesus is the chosen, precious cornerstone in God's plan of redemption. As we saw, as you come to him, a living stone, this is talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is called a living stone there, which might sound kind of weird to you. And what, is, what does that mean that he is a living stone? How does a stone live? After all, Jesus isn't actually made of rock, <laughs> like, the, like the thing in Fantastic Four. Okay? He's not like that. But think about this. Okay, stones are often associated with not being alive. Right? That's the, the whole thing. People, mammals, birds, fish, bugs, plants, bacteria, they, these are all living things. Rocks, stones, minerals, they ain't. Okay, stones, there's no life in a stone. So Peter's like, Jesus is this cornerstone that's been talked about throughout history. He is the cornerstone of God's plan. But that doesn't mean he's a lifeless hunk of rock. He's the living stone. And he's the, and he's the stone at the foundation of, of God's plan. I think it's very fitting that Peter, the rock, the, the original one before Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> Peter's now saying, that may be my name, and I may be a rock that God used, but Jesus is the rock. He's, he's the living stone that was chosen by God. The Lord is the cornerstone on which the church is built. Now, the word cornerstone isn't mentioned until verse 6. But I think we have to talk about it now because it's really the dominant picture throughout this passage of a cornerstone. And unless you're in the construction business, you might be unsure of what a cornerstone is. So in Bible times, if you wanted to construct a building made of stones, you had to first cut the stones into certain shapes, usually squares or rectangles. And then you would assemble the building one stone at a time, right? Stone, mortar, stone, 
mortar, and so on. Now, imagine if uh, you were building a wall, and in building a wall, you placed a stone right in the middle of where you wanted the wall to go, and then built out from there, while at the same time, your buddy's over here doing the same thing, starting with a stone in the middle and building out from there. How, uh, how hard would it be to make sure that those walls lined up and met perfectly, came together? Nearly impossible, right? In building a structure like this, you wouldn't start with the sides. You start with the corner. And you, in the corner, you place the all-important cornerstone, which would have to be square and true. And then you would work out from there to build the rest. Cornerstones were actually part of the foundation, not just a wall. And they would establish the footing, the stability, the integrity, the levelness of the building. They were super important. Everything else that was built afterward was dependent on the cornerstone. And by the way, don't imagine that this is talking about just some little brick or a cinder block. Okay? For structures like the temple in Jerusalem, which Peter alludes to here, cornerstones were usually at least 10 meters long, that's 30 feet, 2 meters wide, and a meter tall. We are talking a massive slab of solid rock. That's a cornerstone. So this is a picture, really, of how essential and how foundational Jesus was to God's plan. However, it was like God sent this heavenly cornerstone to earth to build his kingdom, but the construction form of the day took one look at it and said, that stone won't work. Whether we don't know, we don't like how it looks, we don't like how it'll shape what we're building or whatever, so they discarded it. Peter, Peter says here that God's living stone was rejected by men, in verse 4. It was rejected by men. And when Jesus quoted the, the same Old Testament passages in his time on earth, he was clearly hinting that his rejection would culminate with his crucifixion. The, the builders would reject him, and they would actually kill him. But he was also hinting at the fact that this rejection wouldn't be permanent. Because the stone that the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. And that would happen through Christ's resurrection and his glorification. So you see, people could reject him. But that wouldn't thwart God's purposes or plan at all. Even after the resurrection, and over the centuries, and even now, many people still reject him. He is the living stone rejected by men. But, continue reading there, he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And in God's sight is really the only sight that matters. Jesus was God's chosen cornerstone, he says. He was the chosen one or anointed one. That's what, what the titles Messiah or Christ mean. He was God's chosen instrument of, to bring salvation. He was the chosen sacrifice to pay for sin. 
And what a costly sacrifice at that. Because Jesus was also God's precious cornerstone. He was infinitely valuable to his Father. His worth was immeasurable. He was his beloved Son. His, he was eternally loved and eternally loving. He was holy, perfectly pure. He was the spotless lamb. To, to shed his blood would be a scandal. And yet the shedding of Christ's blood was absolutely essential to God's plan. Without it, there would be no salvation. There would be no new life. There would be no hope for us. Everything rests on Jesus. He is the foundational cornerstone. But here's where this all gets a bit interesting, even shocking. Christ isn't the only chosen, beloved one of God. He's the, the most important chosen one, of course, and he is the most beloved one, definitely. But already in this book, Peter is called believers, elect, or chosen exiles. And he has said that precious blood has been shed to ransom us from our sins, showing how bafflingly loved and precious we are to God. So we sing in another song, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. It's baffling. And right after saying that Jesus is the chosen and precious living cornerstone, Peter's like, get this. <laughs> You're part of this. You're part of God's building project. Verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what I believe we'll see here in these verses. So Jesus is the cornerstone of God's plan, and those who believe in him are built up to show and find God's worth. If those who believe in Jesus are then built up on him to show God's worth and to find God's worth. Again in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones. So while Jesus is the living stone, if we follow him, we become like living stones. In other words, we become part of the structure that God is building in Christ. But we are small. We're seemingly insignificant, right? We, and to top it off, we are sinful people. So why would God want to incorporate us in this building, to use us? Really, it's only because of Jesus goes right back there. It's only because of Jesus, because God's cornerstone and his grace to us. Without him, we are dead in our sins, like lifeless stones. 
but with him, we've seen this, he's given us new eternal life. So now we're living again. We are now living, building material. And we get to follow in God, in our Savior's footsteps and be living stones too. And as living stones, Peter says, we're being built up as a spiritual house. As a spiritual house. As Edmund Clowney says, God's architecture is biological. It's a very great way to put it, short and to the point. But scholars believe that spiritual house is definitely referring to a temple. This isn't just any house. This is a, a temple, like the beautiful temple in Jerusalem or Zion with its massive cornerstones. Of course, the temple in Scripture is most simply seen as God's house. It's where he dwells. But unlike the physical temple, Peter says we're becoming a spiritual house for God, which is, believe it or not, a literal reality. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit dwells in believers. Just ponder that, okay? God dwells inside of you. Okay? You're not God. Okay? But he's there. Is that not shocking? Notice that Peter says that we are being built. Present tense. So as we come to Christ in faith, we are picked up like a stone and we're incorporated into this glorious temple of people that God is building. But it's a process. It's ongoing. And notice also, we're all being built together into his spiritual house. No stone stands alone. We're being built together. You have got mortar on you that should be holding you together to other believers. As Karen Jobes comments, she says, notably, these living stones are not lying about in idle isolation or disorder. They are not heaped in a pile or scattered across a field. The significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one, one's own generation, but also being, by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. I love that picture. The scaffolding coming down. And we see the structure. One of the implications, though, we have got to stop trying to do it all alone. It's not what we're meant to be. It's a side tangent here. I cringe when people refer to church buildings as God's house. As if these bricks and wood and sheetrock and fabrics were sacred. They're not. The people of the church are God's house. We are now what is sacred. So we gather not at 
the house of the Lord, but as the house of the Lord. But Peter goes on to say, we're not just like a temple for God, we're also like priests in that temple. He describes our purpose as living stones, as we've read in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this implies not only do we not need special priests anymore, but we're, we're all supposed to act as priests. Now we may think, well, I'm not holy Right, so how could I be a part of a holy priesthood? Well, remember, by Christ's blood, we are considered holy in God's sight. And we're to be continually growing in holiness. The work's not complete yet. God is in the process of building us into a spiritual house to be holy priests. So, what is this work that we're supposed to do as priests? He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, no one really knows what sacrifices Peter was referring to here. So we probably shouldn't limit it to one picture in specific. We do know that they are spiritual sacrifices, not physical sacrifices like sheep or cows. The, the need for those material sacrifices evaporated after the cross. But the Bible does talk about Christians still offering a variety of sacrifices to the Lord. In Hebrews 13, shortly after telling us how Christ is now our great high priest, it says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So our continual praising of God is a form of sacrifice that we make through Christ. Just like the, the sacrifices Peter said here are made through Jesus Christ. They're offered through him. The very next verse in Hebrews goes on to say, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for, with such, sacri for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So another sacrifice, sacrifice that pleases God is our loving others, doing good to them, sharing what we have with them, loving them earnestly, in other words. Finally, one other place, Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. Now, there's lots of echoes there between those passages. The living sacrifice is acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So what we see is yet another form of sacrifice that we're to make is really our whole lives. It's our bodies, our actions, our lifestyles. This is a form of sacrifice that's acceptable to God. So this is our calling, to give our lives to God, to praise him continually, and to love others like he loved us. And in these ways, we act as priests in the spiritual house of God. 
But this is, this whole picture is why I said we are built up to show his worth. Because that's essentially what all these actions do. They display Christ's worth. They tell a watching world that Jesus is worth living for. That he's worth giving up everything for. He's worth sacrificing for. They proclaim his praise, talking him up, singing him up. And they show that we are no longer living for ourselves, but for God and for others. This is what what living stones being built up into a spiritual house looks like. So, So I rejoice whenever I see our church stepping up to the plate and loving those in need around us. And giving generously to those in need. And feeding the hungry. And visiting the, the sick or the lonely. And making meals. And cleaning houses. That was great yesterday, those of you who came out for that. And they're just serving him faithfully. I rejoice whenever we, we gather together and I hear you singing your hearts out to him. That is offering sacrifices to praise him. Or when I hear of someone that you are lovingly, patiently sharing your faith with. I rejoice whenever I see someone yielding control of their life or their lifestyle over to God. It's making a sacrifice. I rejoice and thank God because whenever we're living like this, we are living out this verse. We are showing God's worth off as we are built into a spiritual house for him to live in. But you might need to ask today, does this verse actually describe my life? And we are to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, God is already working to build you in. This is, this is what you're becoming. So we may just need to get with the program. And if you haven't surrendered to him yet, what are you waiting for? The invitation is open, and as Peter talks about, and I, for, he quotes from Isaiah 28 in verse 6, it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him, in Christ, this can include you. You can believe, and you can be built on the cornerstone if you will just come to him in faith. And I can promise you, If you build your life on Jesus, you will not be sorry. How do I know? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now sure, you may find that following Jesus actually makes this present life harder. The people around you may not appreciate you centering your life on Christ. Your family may be annoyed by it or angry about it, even distance themselves from you over it. Your friends may make fun of you. They may mock you. They may even unfriend you. 
And so from our limited, short-sighted perspectives, we may face some shame on earth. It is a hostile world. But, but at the end of the day, what do other people's opinions really matter if in the sight of God you are chosen and precious like Jesus and you have his love, his favor, his acceptance, and his approval? In the long run, in eternity, you will experience no shame. You will never regret it. In fact, we'll receive the opposite of shame. It's us, not the world, who will receive true honor. And so Peter continues in verse 7, says, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. By God's grace, we will receive great honor in the end. But how do we receive this honor? I think that we receive it by finding Christ's honor, by finding his worth. Most other versions translate this verse something like, this precious value then is for you who believe. Or, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. In other words, the honor that we receive is experiencing how precious Christ is. That just automatically brings honor. And not only are we to show God's worth, it says through Jesus we will find God's worth. We'll find his value. Our every longing for more of him, which is spoken of back in verse 2 and 3, will be fulfilled. In God's sight, Jesus is precious. And we will find him to be infinitely precious as well. However, there's a flip side to all this. And Peter ends with a very serious warning. Using the other quotes from Psalms and Isaiah, Peter talks about those who refuse to come to the cornerstone. And he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So, what we see here, Jesus is the cornerstone of God's eternal plan. And like we saw, those who believe in him are built up to show and find God's worth. But now we see those who reject him will stumble in their resistance to him. Those who reject Jesus in unbelief and disobedience will stumble in their resistance to him. The first quotation there in verse 7 is essentially saying that, that Jesus has already won. 
He's already become the cornerstone. Through his crucifixion, he was rejected, but through his resurrection, he's become the cornerstone. Despite our best efforts to dismiss him or discard him, he was the perfect fit. So God overruled our rejection and placed him as the cornerstone anyway. Which is great news for believers and terrible news for unbelievers. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Listen, you cannot think that Jesus was a great man or a great teacher or a great example and yet reject him as Lord over your life. He rightly demands our allegiance, demands our hearts. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. He's the great demarcating or dividing line of history. And to put it very bluntly, we need to make sure we choose the right side. On a lighter note, I recently saw an article from the paragon of quality Christian journalism, the Babylon Bee. If you don't know, that's a satire site. But it was entitled, Eternal God Concerned He Might Be on the Wrong Side of History. And in it, God worried. What if human history looks back at him in a negative light in a couple hundred years? He just doesn't know if he can take that kind of rejection. <laughs> and it's funny because that's, of course, the furthest thing from what we believe. God is not concerned. Okay? He is not worried about his legacy. He's not, he's not, he's not consumed by people's rejection of him. The whole wrong side of history argument shows how worried we are about our legacies, how worried people are. We are concerned about how people will view us in the future. Because I think that's because we tend to look down on our own history and we don't want that to happen to us. We want to avoid that. But you know what? You'll be dead. Who cares what future people think about you? You should care about what God thinks about you. And live accordingly now. Because 200 years from now, you'll either be with him in glory or without him in hell. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to plead with you. To choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. If you don't, Jesus will be the very thing that ends up tripping you up. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That final quotation, Peter shifts from one stone metaphor to another. Now Jesus isn't just a cornerstone for a building. He's a stone in the road. A stone that makes us trip and fall short of God's plan. 
as Leonard Gopelt says, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of God and thereby of one's destiny. Christ is now a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And some of you may be feeling that right now. You're pretty offended. You think, Jesus can't be that important. He can't be that divisive. He, that's too narrow-minded. Why would Jesus even care about the way I'm living now? I don't accept that as truth for me. And I would suggest to you that you are proving Peter's point. Jesus isn't inoffensive. He flies in the face of our postmodern, pluralistic, naturalistic, and individualistic notions. As Karen Jobes explains, that Christ is the cornerstone. Christ the cornerstone presents an opportunity either for trust or for rejection. Moreover, rejection of Christ is not an amoral decision. It is itself an instance of sin. This is a message that our religiously pluralistic society today finds just as offensive as did first century polytheistic society. To reject Christ is to stumble and sin. Now listen, you may have a number of objections to Christianity. You can say roadblocks to believing. And I believe that there are good answers to your questions if you're willing to hear them. But I also think that all of those things are distractions from the central issue. And that's what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? How will you respond to what Jesus has done? You will either respond in belief or unbelief, acceptance or rejection. So what do you do with a guy who claimed to come from God, performed many miracles, fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, predicted his own death and resurrection, died, then actually came back to life, and then rose to glory, changing countless lives in the process? You might say, none of that ever happened. But are you really willing to risk your life and beyond on that assumption? I'm convinced that's not where the evidence of history points anyway. You are free to believe elsewise, but I urge you, don't do so lightly. If Jesus is the cornerstone to God's plan, everything rises and falls on him. Now Peter's final words might have sounded bothersome to you. The end of verse 8, where he said, The unbelievers stumble because they disobey the word. As they were 
destined to do. And we wince at language about being destined to disobey. We worry about fairness and free will and determinism and all of that. Just, I'll only comment, just the fact that Peter was writing people, giving them commands, and that he constantly called people to respond to the gospel of Christ implies that on some level we make a choice to come to Jesus or reject him. But we have to balance that with what we know that God knows all things and he's in control of all things. We believe that Jesus commands our destinies. We believe both are true. So that both God's sovereign will and man's meaningful choice are both true. How those truths coexist is a bit of a mystery to us. Maybe a lot of a mystery to us. <laughs> and we need to be okay with that. Because we got the microscope. Are people destined to disobey, or do people choose to reject Jesus? Yes. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And we will be held accountable for how we respond to God's plan in Christ. When Peter says that they disobey the word, he's referring to the gospel of Jesus there. It connects right back to the end of chapter 1 where he said, and this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So the fact that Jesus died and rose leaves us an opportunity to obey or disobey. Will we have faith and repentance and trust, or will we resist him to our doom? I'm sorry if you think I sound narrow-minded today. I'm just trying to relay what God says. And in the words of Jesus himself, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Take him or leave him. Enter the narrow gate, or don't. But just know, sometimes you don't want to go with the crowd. Especially if the crowd is leading you away from solid ground. We will all pursue something. So make sure that you choose to pursue what is truly precious precious in God's sight now and what will be precious in our sight forever. We must not stay silent about his worth. So let's not. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we've heard your truth today, some hard truths even. I pray that you would soften our hearts. Help us respond in faith and trust and praise. Give us voices that would continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that bless your name. May we go from here glorifying you. We thank you what you've done in our hearts and continue to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.